I thank God for all who have led us so wonderfully in worship today. We are in a sermon series called Questions Raised, and we're addressing some of the questions that came up among our congregation as we read through the New Testament uh, over the past year. And multiple times, I'd say at least three or four, uh, this question came up relating to how do we interpret what the Bible says about slavery? It's an important question, and that's the title of today's sermon. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 7, 21 through 24 from the New Revised Standard Version. Paul writes, Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. Even if you can gain your freedom, make use of your present condition now more than ever. For whoever was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed person belonging to the Lord, just as whoever was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of human masters. In whatever condition you were called, brothers and sisters, there remain with God. Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word. Help them to hear your word. And Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Perhaps the most controversial question of biblical interpretation in the history of the United States is, is the Bible for or against slavery? While especially contested in the 18th and 19th centuries, this question remains vital today for at least three reasons. The first reason is that human trafficking is a major enterprise through which slavery persists today all around the globe. So the Christian response to human trafficking is at stake when we ask this question. Second, many critics of Christianity, including the prominent atheist authors Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens, argue that the Bible supports slavery and therefore should be disavowed as a holy book. So the Bible's credibility is on the line when we ask this question. Third, many modern-day Christians have questions about the Bible's teachings on slavery, which lead to other questions about the Bible and how it is to be interpreted. So our own understanding of biblical interpretation is at stake when we ask this question. Clearly then, the stakes are high this morning as we carefully contemplate what the Bible says about slavery. A useful entry point is to review the antebellum debates about slavery in America. At that time, those who advocated for slavery and those who wanted to abolish slavery 
both marshaled evidence from Holy Scripture to support their views. On one hand, slavery advocates cited Genesis 9:25, Cursed be Canaan, lowest of slaves shall he be to his brothers. They speciously used this text to suggest that God had specifically ordained the subservience of African Americans. Slavery advocates also cited biblical heroes who had slaves, especially Abraham. They assumed that if such men of God were slaveholders, then slaveholding must be appropriate. They additionally cited Leviticus 25:44. It is from the nations around you that you may acquire male and female slaves. They interpreted this text as a divine endorsement of slavery. On the other hand, abolitionists cited Exodus 20, 15, you shall not steal. They argued that enslaved persons had been stolen from Africa, which was against God's will. With regard to Abraham having slaves, Abolitionists noted that Abraham also lied and had concubines. So he was not exemplary in every way, and certainly not with respect to slaveholding. Abolitionists further cited Matthew 7, 12, do to others as you would have them do to you. They argued that since free persons would not wish to be enslaved, they should not enslave others. As you can see, there was a great deal of back and forth with one side quoting this scripture and the other side quoting that scripture. Richard Furman, the pastor of Charleston Baptist Church, president of the South Carolina State Baptist Convention and namesake of my alma mater, Furman University, wrote one of the most famous biblical defenses of slavery. He cited 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 2. Let all who are under the yoke of slavery regard their masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be blasphemed. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful to them on the grounds that they are members of the church. Rather, they must serve them all the more since those who benefit by their service are believers and beloved. In view of this text, Furman wrote, In things purely spiritual, slaves appear to have enjoyed equal privileges, but their relationship as masters and slaves was not dissolved. To the contrary, the prominent abolitionist pastor, George Cheever, emphasized a different passage in Paul's letters, Colossians 4, 1. Masters, Treat your slaves justly and fairly, for you also have a master in heaven. In view of this text, Cheever declared, The very first article of that justice and equality or equity is that no man shall hold or treat any other man as property, that no human being shall make merchandise of man. Among the various scriptures referenced, one passage that both sides quoted was 1 Corinthians 7, 21. Now, leading up to this verse, Paul has been speaking to different groups in 1 Corinthians 7. 
He has spoken to the unmarried and the widows. He has spoken to the married. And then in verse 21, he speaks to the slaves in the Corinthian church. According to the NRSV, Paul says, If you can gain your freedom, make use of your present condition now more than ever. But according to the NIV, he says, If you can gain your freedom, do so. The reason for the discrepancy in translation is that Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 7.21 are ambiguous. A literal translation of the Greek says, If you are able to become free, use it all the more. Use what, Paul? Their current status as slaves or the opportunity to gain their freedom? Slavery advocates said Paul was commanding slaves to make use of their current status and to remain slaves. Abolitionists said Paul was commanding slaves to make use of their opportunity for freedom and to seek manumission, the official liberation of a slave. Modern-day Bible scholar Brad Braxton contends that Paul's ambiguity in verse 21 is deliberate. I agree that Paul was intentionally ambiguous here because he faced a real dilemma regarding slaves in the earliest churches. On one hand, he did not want to discourage manumission and thereby reinforce the oppressive institution of slavery, which was totally incompatible with Christian morality. On the other hand, he did not want to issue a clear command for all slaves to be manumitted because this would have drawn enough social opposition to shut down the fledgling Christian movement. I think Paul decided to encourage the manumission of slaves subtly through ambiguity so that he could simultaneously defy the institution of slavery and keep the nascent church alive and developing. Let me explain how I discovered the potency of Paul's subtle rhetoric in verse 21. When I was studying at Vanderbilt, I took a New Testament class that met inside a maximum security prison in the city of Nashville. Each week, my classmates and I sat with several inmates, many of whom were doing a life sentence, and together we all discussed the New Testament writings with a professor from Vanderbilt. One evening, the conversation turned to slavery, and several people criticized the New Testament for supporting slavery. I wanted to mention 1 Corinthians 7.21 to suggest that Paul actually encouraged slaves to free themselves. But just as I was preparing to speak, the conversation took a turn. One of the inmates said that the United States still allows slavery and that he is a modern-day slave. He explained that the 13th Amendment stipulates that incarcerated persons can be forced to do physical labor. Several other inmates also expressed frustration that they are modern-day slaves. I was still looking for an opportunity to mention 1 Corinthians 7.21, But since the inmates had just identified themselves as slaves, I thought to myself, well, now if I explain that 1 Corinthians 7.21 encourages slaves to seek 
freedom, it may sound like I'm promoting a jailbreak. I remember this vividly. I checked the hallway to see if a prison guard was within earshot. I scanned the room to see if there were any video cameras recording our conversation. I was truly concerned that mentioning one meaning of 1 Corinthians 7.21 might get me escorted from the premises or worse. This experience offers a clue to the radical implications of this verse in first century Corinth. Even an ambiguous hint that slaves should seek manumission would suggest that the gospel subverts the institution of slavery. Even a nod in that direction would indicate that Christianity and slavery are irreconcilable, that evangelization leads to emancipation, and that as Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there is no longer slave or free, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. What's more, since Paul was speaking to slaves in 1 Corinthians 7.21, And since he offered them an ambiguous word about manumission, the verse functioned to place the power of interpretation into the hands of enslaved Christians. In the end, they could decide whether to remain slaves or seek freedom. Notice that Paul did not put the interpretative option into the hands of masters, but of slaves. To grant slaves this type of interpretative power was socially radical. It reminds me that while slavery advocates and abolitionists were debating various scriptures in relation to American slavery, enslaved African Americans were generally prohibited from learning how to read and often specifically prohibited from reading the Bible. This way, slaveholders could fill their ears over and over again with Ephesians 6, 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. Over time, however, enslaved African Americans found ways to read and interpret scripture for themselves. For example, theologian Willie James Jennings tells the story of one enslaved man in Person County, North Carolina. He used to get the big Bible from his master's house and read it while the family was away on the Sabbath. He was always careful to put it back before they returned so that he would not be whipped, mutilated, or sold as punishment. The very fact that slavery advocates often prohibited enslaved African Americans from reading the Bible, betrays that the Bible does not endorse slavery as clearly as they claimed. Indeed, when African Americans were able to read scripture, they often seized on the story of the Exodus, a foundational narrative of the Old Testament in which God liberates slaves from bondage. They drew encouragement from this story that God desired their freedom. They also underscored the words of Christ in Luke 4, 18 through 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to declare the year of the Lord's favor. In this passage, Jesus proclaims that his mission reflects the jubilee year stipulated in Leviticus 25, including its call for the release of slaves. In the hands of African Americans, the Bible looked less like a pro-slavery pamphlet and more like a source book for liberation. Since then, others have come to recognize that God champions the downtrodden throughout the Bible and stands firmly against slavery. In Exodus 14, God frees the Israelites from enslavement. In Luke 4, Jesus says his mission is to release the captives and to free the oppressed. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul encourages Christian slaves to seek freedom. In Galatians 3, Paul says there is no longer slave or free, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. In Amos 1, the prophet declares, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they carried into exile entire communities to hand them over to Edom. Along with this clear denunciation of human trafficking in Amos, numerous scriptures show that God desires justice for the oppressed, including Isaiah 1, Amos 5, Micah 6, and others. There is also Paul's letter to Philemon, a very short New Testament book which concerns a runaway slave named Onesimus. In verses 15 through 17, Paul urges Philemon to welcome back Onesimus no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, both in the flesh and in the Lord. This is Paul's way of telling Philemon to free Onesimus from slavery. Paul's teachings about slaves, therefore, do not always conform to Richard Furman's claim that masters and slaves become spiritual equals while maintaining their uneven social relationship. In 1 Corinthians 7.21 and in Philemon 15-17, through 17, Paul advocates for spiritual and social equality through the liberation of enslaved persons. Since we have now reviewed several biblical passages in relation to slavery, let us return to the three key items at stake today. First, what is the Christian response to human trafficking and modern-day slavery? Since the Bible reveals a God who liberates those in bondage, proclaims release to captives, and demands justice and social equity for all people, Christians are to seek the liberation of the enslaved. As God's people, we are to decry and dismantle the sinister schemes of human trafficking. Second, do the Bible's teachings on slavery undermine the credibility of the Bible, as many critics claim? There is more nuance in the Bible's teachings about slavery than most people acknowledge. 
while certain scriptures reinforce slavery, other scriptures subvert it. Yet the Bible consistently reveals throughout, from the law to the prophets to the Psalms to the Gospels to the epistles, that God champions the cause of the poor and the oppressed. In my view, the Bible offers the inspiration we need to oppose slavery in the name of Christ. The Bible's historical role in supporting slavery is due more to biased interpretation than to Scripture itself. Regarding the Bible's witness against slavery, Bible scholar Esau Macaulay writes, On the first read, the Bible does not appear to say all that we want it to say in the way that we want the Bible to say it. And yet this is the crucial part. The Bible says more than enough. Which brings us to the third question. How do we interpret the Bible with regard to slavery? And what lessons can we learn from biblical debates about slavery in the past? One takeaway of our study is that since Paul put the power of interpretation into the hands of Christian slaves, we do well to listen to the biblical interpretations of Christians on the margins, those who live on the underside of society. Their voices are invaluable in helping us understand Scripture more fully partly because they can help rectify our tendency to find our own perspective reinforced every time we open the Bible. Another key takeaway of our study is this observation. Slavery advocates often cited obscure passages in the Old Testament or in Paul's letters while abolitionists and African-American interpreters often appealed to touchstone scriptures, such as the story of the Exodus, the Ten Commandments, the Golden Rule, and Jesus' summary of his own mission in Luke 4. Whenever we let peripheral verses override central themes of scripture, we veer off the path of holy interpretation. In other words, whenever we let the letter of the law overwhelm the spirit of Scripture, we are mistaken. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, 16, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. In this respect, I remain haunted by one passage in Richard Furman's biblical defense of slavery. He wrote, The Christian golden rule of doing to others as we would they should do to us has been urged as an unanswerable argument against holding slaves. But surely this rule is never to be urged against that order of things which the divine government has established. Had I been a preacher in 1838 when this document was first published, I can only hope that I would have fiercely opposed it. In any case, I certainly fiercely oppose it now. The golden rule is a standard against which every scripture, every interpretation, and every ethic is to be measured. After all, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 12, do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. In other words, this rule is a summary of scripture. Biblical interpretation should not be reduced to the golden rule. 
but it should not violate it either. This rule could have redeemed antebellum debates about slavery. Perhaps it can redeem our modern-day biblical interpretation as well. In the final analysis, there is no denying that Christians across the centuries have played a terribly lamentable role in allowing, supporting, practicing, and advocating slavery in different times, in different places, all around the world, and that they have cited the Bible in doing so. Still, as Macaulay notes, no society that preceded the 18th century abolitionists contended that slavery itself was fundamentally immoral. The widespread move to abolish slavery is a Christian innovation. The bold believers, both black and white, who opposed slavery cited the Bible in doing so. They demonstrate a type of biblical interpretation, spiritual discernment, and moral courage that can inspire us in our own ongoing walk of faith as we worship the God who created us all equally in God's own image. As we follow the Savior who died for us all on the cross to bring us all redemption. And as we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. For as Paul writes, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Amen.